letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. God will bless the reading of his word to us. Now, um, as you know, we've been looking through uh, the book of Acts, and uh, most recently in chapter 8, we began to look at a series of conversions that Luke uh, has chosen to record back to back to each other, and there are different kinds of conversions. We read in chapter 8 um, about the conversion of Simon the sorcerer, and this turns out to be a false conversion. And so it's a warning to us that people can seem to be converted, can seem to be Christian. You know, they go through all the hoops, you know, they get excited about Jesus, they're impacted by the preaching of the gospel, they even want to follow Jesus in baptism, they join the church, they get all excited about what's happening in the church, but after all, they are not really converted. They're not really changed in their heart of hearts. And we saw that in Simon. His conversion was a false conversion. And Jesus warned of this as well. Jesus said, on the day of judgment, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will say to them, I never knew you, you evildoers. So there's that category in the church today. There may be one sitting here right now this morning, a false convert, a person who has not really changed in their heart. 
And then we read about the Ethiopian eunuch in verses 26 to 40, and he's a picture of a true conversion. So in Simon, we see the elements of a false conversion. In the Ethiopian eunuch, we see the elements of a true conversion. And we looked at that last time we were in Acts. Today, we're looking at a great conversion in the conversion of Saul. Now, why do I suggest that it's a great conversion? And I suggest it's a great conversion because it is probably the most significant conversion of all conversions through all time. Saul's conversion is quite unique. Um, you know, it's, it's significant that way. There was a blinding light from heaven. There was a voice that thundered from heaven and called his name. That's pretty significant. That's pretty unique. But not only because of that, it's also a significant conversion because this conversion has had the greatest impact on the whole world in the furtherance of Christian faith around the world. In fact, Acts uh, starts uh, in chapter 13 centering the whole story of the spread of the kingdom of God around this one person, Paul, who was Saul. And so Saul became the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Saul was also the greatest theologian. He was a pastor. He was a preacher. He was a teacher. He was a writer whose writings have been read and are still read all around the world. And he was a great leader. He was inspired by God to write 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. This is a significant Conversion. This is a great conversion. It's a conversion that changed the world. If you're a Christian today, it could quite likely trace back to Saul. It was Saul's writing that influenced, for example, Martin Luther and the great reformation of the church in the book of Romans that he had written. So his writings, more than any other, have shaped the theology and the practice of over 2 billion people around the world today. They trace it back to the writings of Saul. Now, because of the influence of his conversion, it was important to Luke that we see that his conversion was a sovereign act of God. I've heard people say, you know, I really like the gospel of Jesus, but then Saul got a hold of it, and he just messed it all up. Jesus I like, but Paul I'm not so crazy about. And Luke is determined to show us that the conversion of Paul was the ongoing work of Jesus. Jesus called him. Jesus appointed him. Jesus led him. Jesus inspired him to write what he wrote. It's very important to Luke that we see that. And so he records this story three times in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, in chapter 22, and in chapter 26. He really wants us to get this. This is a great conversion, and it's all God. Now, here's the important thing I want us to notice as we go through Paul's conversion. For all of its significance, and despite the fact that it's quite unique in its features, Paul's conversion is a paradigm of every conversion. We see certain elements in huge lights in Paul, but those same elements are true of every single conversion. 
So it's going to help us um, as we're looking at Paul for two Sundays to just get a bit of his backstory. So let, let's think about Saul's backstory. Uh, Saul grew up in the city of Tarsus, a city of Asia Minor today. It would be on the border of Turkey and Syria. And it's, so it's north of the nation of Israel. Now, this was a distinguished city. Uh, of the three great universities that were in the world at that time, one of them was in Tarsus. It was an important city. And Tarsus, though it was a Gentile city, had a large Jewish population. Saul was one of those Jews. Now, Saul's father was a Roman citizen as well as a Jew. And this was a great advantage to Saul. Sometimes when he was about to be beat by the Romans, he pulled out his Roman citizenship card, and they trembled. You don't beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And so Saul inherited Roman citizenship. He was born a Roman citizen because his father was a Roman citizen. But his father also passed on to him his Jewish faith. Now, in Jewish tradition, every boy had to learn a trade. Um, and so Saul learned to weave cloth out of goat hair. And with this cloth, he would create tents. So Saul became, by trade, a tent maker. Now, at the age of 13, when, this, uh, when a Jewish boy turned 13, he became what was known as the son of the law, or a son of the law. And he was likely sent to Jerusalem to study Judaism at the highest level. We know this because he tells us that he studied under a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, even in his day, had a nickname. Gamaliel was called the beauty of the law. When I went to Regent College, and I told my professors back in Toronto I was going to Regent College. They said, oh, that's really good. You'll be sitting under J.I. Packer. He was a prestigious theologian. Well, that's what Saul did. He sat under Gamaliel, the best teacher of the day. The law was never more beautiful than when Gamaliel taught it. And Saul learned from him. And Saul was a top Notch student. He trained for years memorizing probably the whole Old Testament. He would have been able to quote any of the 39 books in the Old Testament. Uh, he spent years in intense qu questions and answers, you know, learning how to answer the, all the difficult theological questions. And they would go for hours back and forth, questions and answers, questions and answers. He would learn how to debate the fine points of the Jewish law. Saul became an expert in the law. He became also a rising star in Judaism. He was the top of the class. And so sometime later, he described his former life this way in Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6. He says this, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, what does all of this say to us about Saul and what he was like? Well, Saul was 
very devout, very rigid, very learned, very convinced, very legalistic, very zealous, and very traditional. That was Saul. In later life, he commented that he was advancing in Judaism beyond his peers. He was ahead of his peers. He became a noticed and respected leader in Judaism, so much so that the highest officials entrusted certain missions to Saul. One of those was to exterminate the church. And so we meet Saul, for example, back in chapter 7, verse 58, when Stephen has preached a message to the Sanhedrin, to the Supreme Court of the Jews, and at the end of it, he is stoned to death. And we read that as people were getting ready to stone Stephen, they took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of Saul. And scholars think that this happened not because Saul was some sort of lower clerk who looked after coats, but because he was in charge of the stoning. He was the official. He was the one that people looked to as the leader. So that was Saul, and that brings me to my first observation about his conversion. The first thing I want you to know is that Paul's conversion was an impossible conversion. The last person you would expect to convert to Christian faith was Saul. He would never convert to it. Saul was deeply steeped in Judaism. His whole family environment influenced him in one direction only. His training, his position in the Jewish hierarchy, all of these things made his conversion a human impossibility. He would never convert, ever convert. We read, for example, in verses 1 and 2 that he was rabidly opposed to the Christian faith. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, we read. Now, still breathing out threats is referring to this past. Right after Stephen was stoned, he went on a rampage to arrest and have killed or imprisoned Christians, breathing out threats still. The presence and preaching of Stephen had deeply agitated Saul. Now, why? Why was he so furious with Stephen especially? Well, Saul was a Hellenistic Jew. That is, he was a Jewish man who lived out of Jerusalem, and he probably grew up speaking Greek and not the Aramaic in Jerusalem. Stephen was also a Hellenistic Jew who spoke Greek, and Stephen was going around Jerusalem to all the Hellenistic synagogues preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. And every day, people were coming to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and Saul was horrified that people actually believed this man who was crucified on a Roman cross in great humiliation was their supposed Messiah. What blasphemy, he thought. He was infuriated. But people had come to believe that his death paid the penalty of sin, that a person is not saved by keeping the law of all things, that circumcision does not make you God's people. You become God's people by faith alone. And Saul hated those things. He hated them. 
And he saw that the church was aggressively expanding and claiming people out of these Hellenistic synagogues. For him, this was infuriating, and his response was to meet it with force. Now, if he couldn't silence Stephen by argument, he would silence him by an execution. That was Saul, an impossible conversion. He would never come to faith. And in his zeal, Saul rose to prominence as the leadership, uh, the leader of a force to stamp out conversions to Christ. Years later, he described himself like this in Acts 26, 9 to 11. He said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And his zeal was not confined to Jerusalem only. He goes on in verse 11 of that same chapter to say, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And so in back, in, back in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Luke characterizes Saul's fury like this. Saul began to destroy the church. He was making progress. So it was impossible at the human level that Saul would ever become a follower of Jesus. He lived to destroy followers of Jesus. And let me suggest to you, that in Paul's unique conversion story, we see themes that are true of every conversion. And every conversion is an impossible conversion. The Bible says that we were all dead in sin. We weren't sickly. We weren't weak. We weren't damaged. We were dead. Incapable of a response to spiritual stimulus. The Bible says that by nature, we are governed by a sinful nature and we are by nature hostile to God. We don't want him telling us how to live. The Bible says that by nature we were the objects of God's wrath. Every conversion is an impossible conversion. And Jesus taught the same thing. Once when his disciples observed that after Jesus preached the sermon, crowds of people left him. They said, that's too much for us. We can't handle this. And they left. And Jesus made this observation. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And then a little later in John 6, 65, he says this. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Now think about those words. Words are important in the Bible. He says no one. That's a universal negative. There are no exceptions. No one can. That's talking about ability. You know, when you're in elementary school and you raise your hand and you say to your teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And she'd say, I'm sure you're able to go to the bathroom. You mean, may I go to the bathroom? <laughs> Jesus uses can, referring to ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless that's the necessary condition. A condition unless the Father enables them. Every conversion is miraculous because it was humanly impossible.
We see it loudly in Saul. It was true of you too. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about Saul's conversion, you'll find it in verses 3 to 8, um, is that his was a sovereign conversion. Let me ask you something. Based on what you've heard about Saul, when he came to faith in Jesus, was it because he was very open to the truth of Jesus? Did Saul come to Jesus because he felt like a lost person in need of a Savior? Was he an open-minded person? And the answer, of course, is no. He was not looking for Jesus. Paul's story of conversion shows what the Bible tells us about everyone. A conversion happens by the irresistible initiative and activity and power of God. And that's what we see about Saul's conversion in verses 3 to 6. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. A voice spoke down to him like thunder and called him by name. Saul, Saul. <laughs> now, if we include the details that are in the other two tellings of this story, we find out this. It was, a, it was about noon, so it was the brightest, sunniest part of the day. They're traveling along, probably in a fairly routine manner. You know how it is with a trip. After a while, you just get bored. It's very mundane. You're just waiting for the trip to end, you know. They're listening to the clip-clop, 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 clip-clop of the horses as they move along. The murmur of voices would rise and fall once in a while. Most of the time, they'd be just riding in silence. Likely, they'd settled into the mundanity of travel. Perhaps, perhaps they were thinking about these arrests they were about to make, and there's just a little bit of stress under the surface as they anticipate hauling people out of their homes or out of the synagogues and dragging them off to Jerusalem. And suddenly, in an instant, there's this flash of light that's brighter than the noonday sun, and it's not just above them, it's all around them, and I, I can imagine that they collapse to the ground with confusion and cries of shock. And some of them hear a sound like thunder in the middle of a sunny day. But Saul hears a voice speaking to him. And that voice calls his name twice. Saul, Saul. And you know, in the Bible, there are times when Jesus called people twice. And it always seems to anticipate this intensified attention and care he has for a person. So you remember when he's at the home of Mary and Martha, he turns to Martha and he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about so many things. Or you remember when Jesus stood over Jerusalem and he looked out over Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings. Or some, one time he said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And now Saul hears his name, Saul, Saul. And what that voice said shattered everything Saul believed. Saul believed. 
Everything he had forged through his upbringing, everything he had come to believe through his training, everything that he had put into practice, all his prejudices, it shattered it. Why do you persecute me? Together with the statement, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, everything Saul denied was proven to be true. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It's true. Jesus was divine. Christians were his people. He was rejecting Israel's Messiah. He was a persecutor of the truth. He was a murderer of God's people. All of this came crashing in on Saul. Things he would have never believed before. Jesus reached out to Saul when he was absolutely deceived and actively opposing Jesus. Reached out to him and converted him. Now that's a picture of every conversion. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, if you love him and trust him and delight to do his will, it's not because you were looking for him. It was because he was looking for you. He pulled you to himself. It is a sovereign act of grace calling you by name. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. I will call them by name and they will come to me. Notice that the others who were with him, they saw a light, but they didn't hear their names called. Verses 7 and 8, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They, were, they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. So Saul heard a voice. He heard his name, and he heard a convicting message, and no one else did. Just Saul. When God is going to save a person, he expresses to them their deep, sinfulness, and he draws them to himself. They're going along in life like Saul was, quite satisfied with themselves, thinking themselves to be okay. And then suddenly, to their shock and horror, they see they have been awfully wrong, terribly wrong. You're guilty of the greatest sins, and suddenly you know it. Didn't see it before. So Paul, ever after, was convinced that he was the world's worst sinner. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So God opened Saul's spiritually blind eyes and made himself real to Saul. So the first thing about Saul's conversion is that it was an impossible conversion. So was yours. The second thing about Saul's conversion is that it was a sovereign conversion. It was by God's initiative and power. So was yours. The third thing about Saul's conversion, it was a gracious conversion. We read that in verse 9. We read that God put Saul into such a condition so he could do nothing but think. <laughs> I think it's great. Verse 9 says, For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything, and so think he did. He thought through what Jesus had said. He thought through what it meant for his life. And he was so overwhelmed by his thoughts that he had no appetite for food or even water. Totally overwhelmed by what he had heard. He took stock of his life, his actions, his beliefs, and found out that they were all wrong. 
Everything about him was false and wrong. He was a deceived person. Verse 11 tells us that he was praying during that time. But what was he praying about? Well, no doubt he was praying about what Jesus had said to him on the road. Why are you persecuting me? No doubt he was thinking over these words. And you know what? Every convert, they have to think over the words of Jesus. They think over the words of Jesus and what they mean for their lives. Jesus has said, why are you persecuting me? That meant that Jesus is so united to his people, the church, that what we do to the church is what we do to him. Boy, he'd, he'd been doing some pretty bad stuff to the Messiah. In other words, if we love and help the church, we're loving and helping him. If we stand aloof from the church, distant, unengaged, we're distant, unengaged, aloof from Jesus. And Saul was actually smashed by this indictment. All this time, he had been satisfied with himself. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, as to the law, he was blameless. He was excelling beyond his peers. And now Jesus exposed to him his real condition, and that is always an act of grace. It's an act of grace to see what you are before God. You are not okay. You're spiritually bankrupt. You're an enemy to God. Suddenly saw, Saul saw himself for who he really was. He was a sinner, and he needed a Savior. He was the worst of sinners. Now, what does a person do when they see, when they understand their true lost condition? When they are so appalled by, way, by what they've discovered that they can't eat, what do they do? And we see it in Saul. He repented. He was going one way with his back to God. He stopped in his tracks, turned around, and went straight for God <laughs> through Jesus. But, you know, you can go deeper in that. When you, when you repent, something else is involved, and you see it in Saul. True repentance, a repentance that is by the grace of God, always includes subjective feelings. And it is a feeling of self-loathing. Jesus talked this way on the Sermon on the Mount. As he's describing the blessed people, uh, the beatitude, he says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. The happy ones, the truly happy ones, are, are those who understand that they are spiritually bankrupt. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, they don't just see their spiritual bankruptcy. It grieves them. They're cut to the heart. They feel great shame and loathing for the way they have lived and the things they have done. They see it as the dirty stuff God sees it to be. They have this feeling of self-loathing. They want to be cleaned up. They want their guilt and shame to be removed. Repentance always includes this sense of self-rejection. 
So, for example, Paul in Romans chapter 7, he's talking about his struggle with sin, and he says, the good I want to do, I don't do. The very bad I don't want to do, that's what I do. And then he cries out this, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm a wretched man. Who is going to save me from this body of death? Have you had that feeling? Do you have that feeling when you do what is wrong? I do. I'm grown. I plead with God to make me clean. I see it the way God sees it. Repentance always includes this sense of the self-rejected. And when Jesus saves someone, he first shows them their wretched condition in such a way that they are torn up by grief and shame and regret. And that's what makes them go to a savior. Someone who can save them. That's saving grace. So I want to ask you, as we just think about this conversion of Saul, I want to ask you, has anyone come to your mind as you've looked at Saul's conversion, a loved one, <coughs> excuse me, that seems beyond hope. They will never convert. Paul's was an impossible conversion. But every conversion is. Secondly, Paul's conversion was a sovereign conversion. This person that you're thinking of, they might have absolutely no interest in God. In fact, they're going 100 miles an hour the other way. But if God calls them by name, they will come. It's a sovereign conversion, and it's a gracious conversion. It will mean a total change of heart. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer, and then we'll close in a song. Our Father, we thank you so much for this story of Saul's conversion. These elements that shine so brightly in his life that they cannot be missed. And then we discover that they're the same elements in our conversion. Oh, how wonderful that you take people like me for whom love to you is an impossibility. I'm so turned in on myself. I'm not looking for you. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I remember, Father, at the age of 19 when I knelt by my bed before I even understood these ideas, and I told you or I thanked you for reaching down to me because I would have never reached up to you. We thank you that conversions are a sovereign God-initiated thing. And we thank you, Father, that conversions are gracious. They change our hearts so completely that we hate what we once were and love to become like Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.